This program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is C-Y-K-I-A-E. Well, this is the end, my friends. Over the past 12 parts, I've looked at the issue of the stolen generations, and there's no other conclusion than the finding that it's a myth. In the first two parts, I looked at what Aboriginal activists had to say about it from the 1940s to the 1980s, until Peter Reid discovered the stolen generations in 1980. Not one Aboriginal activists had commented on the stolen generations until Peter Reid had discovered it. And since then, not one Aboriginal activist has failed to comment on it. The claim that there were stolen generations went to the High Court of Australia in the Kruger case to prove that the policies of the Australian governments were genocidal. In 1997, the High Court of Australia rejected that in a decision handed down after the Bring Them Home report had been issued. The High Court invited anyone who thought they had a claim about genocide because of the way that the government departments administered the laws to bring any such claims. Lorna Cabillo and Robert Gunner did just that. In 2000, Justice O'Loughlin of the Federal Court of Australia rejected their claims. He found that the government had pursued a policy of offering humanitarian care to vulnerable children exposed to mistreatment, violence, including sexual abuse, as well as trying to offer children caught up in those problems education and skills to find employment. Despite the fact that after both of those cases, it's no longer possible to bring a case before a court in Australia alleging genocide and alleging that you are a member of the Stolen Generations because there were no Stolen Generations, I seriously doubt whether more than a handful of Australians today know that. Our children continue to be taught about the Stolen Generations in schools and at universities, even though it's now a proven myth. Aboriginal leaders continue to not only tell the story of the Stolen Generations, some even make the impossible claim 
that they are members of that stolen generations. The thousands of white Australians who dedicated, in some cases, their whole lives to helping Aboriginal children who were in desperate need between 1910 and 1980 have been called out as being no different to the concentration camp guards at the Nazi death camps. We know that the children of families where there's domestic violence, sexual abuse, that those children are very likely to do the same thing to their partners and their children when they grow to adulthood. Letting kids grow up in an environment free from that well, was clearly a good thing. So what's happened in Aboriginal communities around Australia since all state and federal governments have effectively stopped being involved in trying to prevent these abuses being perpetrated today? Why did so many Aboriginals claim to be victims of the stolen generations, even though there was no such thing? Let me try to give you some answers in this wrap-up. Natasha Robinson, a journalist with the Weekend Australian, wrote a shocking story that appeared in that paper on 6 to 7 February 2010, just 17 years after the Bring Them Home report, and probably reflecting by then somewhere around 30 years of governments around Australia quickly and dramatically scaling back their programs to provide the same care to Aboriginal children that all non-Indigenous children in Australia have. Now, today, Aboriginal children are, for the most part, not protected from domestic violence of all kinds. Natasha gave these examples of Aboriginal children and what had happened to them at that time. The first child's story that she told was Peter's. She wrote this, Seven weeks old, Peter starved to death in the back of a hot car on the Stewart Highway in 2005. Peter was born to a drug-using mother whose six other children had all been known to the Northern Territory Body, Family and Children Services, FACS. In 2002, one of the children, a daughter, was taken to Alice Springs Hospital at three months old, looking haunted and as though she was a bony skeleton. The child weighed less than her birth weight. During her brief life, fax officers were repeatedly contacted with reports that Peter appeared extremely skinny. There were various attempts to remove Peter from his mother's care, but she was uncooperative, and fax workers did not ask the police to forcibly remove the baby from the mother's care as they could have. Peter's mother fled with two of her other children to South Australia, arriving in Port Wakefield with no money, fuel or food. Peter was discovered dead in the back of the car at a service station. At the time of his death, he weighed 2,390 grams, more than one kilogram less than his birth weight. Okay, so the next case that Natasha reported in her article was about Michael. She wrote this. Michael killed his uncle, who was his approved carer 
in July 2007. By the age of six, it was clear to teachers and health workers that Michael had global development delay and severe behavioural problems. Schools could not handle the child who was impulsive and aggressive, had periods of headbanging, drinking his own urine, terrorising younger children and the elderly, as well as being cruel to animals. Disturbing incidents, including Michael biting the head off a brown snake and dismembering a puppy with an axe, failed to raise alarm within the bureaucracy. He was also seen walking around a sleeping member of his Aboriginal community wielding an axe. Michael was declared a child in need of care and assessed by a psychiatrist who found his intellectual impairments were compounded by exposure to ridicule and violence. Disability services became involved when Michael was 10. In January 2007, Michael stabbed a female relative. Twice. The relative told a doctor that Michael is dangerous and needs to be locked up. Still, there was no supervision of Michael or risk plan carried out by the department. In May that year, Michael assaulted a young girl with a star picket. Still, there was no escalation through the community services hierarchy. Two months later, Michael stabbed his uncle to death. Another case that Natasha reported was Joy. She wrote this about her. Just weeks after Fax closed its case files on 16-year-old Joy, an Aboriginal girl living in a remote town, the teenager was revealed to be one of eight girls at the mining town who had been sexually abused by a government official. Joy's case was full of red flags that should have made her a high priority for those tasked with child protection. Police reported she was selling sex for drugs, was staying at the house of a known drug dealer, was sniffing petrol and glue and abusing alcohol and cannabis. But repeated attempts by police to get facts to intervene to protect Joy came to nothing. The teenager, who was born with fetal alcohol syndrome, had a long history of neglect in her Aboriginal family. As early as age two, she was deposited at the local health clinic because nobody was caring for her. By the age of four, she had to have her stomach pumped because of ingested pills. Joy was assessed by health workers as being at risk of severe harm. Police begged facts to intervene in her case in four separate notifications. Howard Bath said in his report that the sense of urgency around finding a safe place for Joy to live was not shared by facts, who rated her as a child of concern. From the available records, there was no apparent further action taken. On the basis that no government policies are really in place to deal with the family violence in Aboriginal culture, have things gotten better in the Aboriginal communities since the end of the government policies that were investigated by the Bring Them Home report aimed at helping children, the most vulnerable members of our communities, who perhaps should have an entitlement to expect the older people 
who bring them into this world to do the right thing by them. Marcia Langton, a leading Australian Aboriginal activist, took part in an ABC Q&A program on 5 July 2016, where she cast some interesting light on this issue. From what the activists have to say, you could probably expect the rates of violence against children and women in the Aboriginal community to have declined since white people stopped stealing their children. What do you think has happened? Marcia Langton's statements were fact-checked and found to be correct. In the ABC Q&A program of 27 June 2016, Marcia Langton said that violence against Indigenous women ranges between 34 times the national figure to 80 times the national figure in the worst areas. So, she says, it's a high-priority issue. No shit, Sherlock. In 2006, the Aboriginal Institute of Health and Welfare reported that Indigenous females and males were between 22 and 35 times as likely to be hospitalised due to family violence-related assaults as other Australian females and males respectively. Curtin University researcher Hannah McGlade, in a report covered in The Australian in 2016 said Aboriginal women here are 37 times more likely to be hospitalised than non-Aboriginal women for non-fatal family violence-related assaults. In the Northern Territory, the rate of hospitalisation is up to 86 times higher for Aboriginal women. In Central Australia, this figure is 95 times more likely for Aboriginal women. We also know that Indigenous people are disproportionately victims and offenders in homicide incidents, and that most of these occur between family members. The Fact Checker article says, We know that rates of domestic and family violence are higher in remote Indigenous communities and that there are even greater barriers to reporting violence to authorities in small remote communities than there are in regional area and metropolitan centres. The Fact Checker article concluded that what Marcia Langton had to say about the staggeringly high levels of domestic violence among Aboriginals were correct. Why? Well, the article offers these suggestions. There are various explanations as to why rates of domestic and family violence are more prevalent in Indigenous communities. Many accept that the impact of colonisation, ongoing trauma from the displacement of Indigenous people from their traditional lands and kinship groups, the removal of children from their families and the ongoing negative relationship between Indigenous people and the criminal justice system have all contributed to heightened levels of violence. For the sake of completeness, I think in all fairness, I probably should add to those factors. Explaining Aboriginal domestic violence, climate change and Donald Trump 
I also note, in passing, that out of that list, which doesn't have any actual academic or scientific evidence to support any of what it says, the Aboriginals themselves are not responsible for anything at all that had contributed to their problems of violence. Australian historian Geoffrey Blaney recorded that deaths among warring Australian Aboriginals before the arrival of the English were at the same proportionate levels as the bloodiest fighting on the Western Front in World War I. That's mind-boggling. I assume that I am also to take from the information about why there are such levels of domestic violence today before the arrival of the English settlers, life for women in the Aboriginal tribes was as near to the most perfect feminist dream that Gloria Steinem could have prayed for. But another point of view may be that based on Geoffrey Blaney's findings that the Aboriginals have a 60,000 year history of extreme violence between their own clans, it would be plausible from that in a patriarchal Aboriginal pre-invasion society, to think that their women were subjected to extreme violence from their men back then. So playing the devil's advocate here isn't the most likely explanation for Aboriginal domestic violence today increasing in frequency as you head to the more remote areas of Australia, closer to places where traditional ways of life still persist, my hypothesis is that the real reasons why there's such a high rate of domestic violence is because that is the nature of Aboriginal society. Jewish theologian Dennis Prager, in his book Genesis, The Rational Bible, has this to say, which I believe is relevant to those 40 members of the National Aboriginal Consultative Council who were hearing the wonderful story of the stolen generations for the first time from Coral Umara back in 1980. Blaming others for wrongs we have done is literally as old as humanity. Adam blamed Eve and implicitly God, and Eve, as we shall now see, blamed the snake. Neither took personal responsibility. As psychiatrist Abraham Tversky puts it, human beings need four things, air, food, drink, and someone to blame. Blaming others for the wrongs we do is not only morally wrong, it makes emotional and moral growth impossible. Yet it remains a universal epidemic. To cite just a few examples, many adults blame their parents for all their serious problems. Many regimes blame imperialism for their country's corruption. And many murderers blame poverty or a difficult childhood for their criminality. All of that sounds awfully like what Fact Checker found about colonialism, etc., being responsible for the woes of the Aboriginals. Find someone to blame. In part one of the series, I talked about Dr. Peter Reed, who discovered the stolen generations myth in 1980, and his colleague, Coral Umara Edwards an indigenous person raised in one of those evil stolen generation concentration camps, Kutamandra Girls' Home. Coral and Peter set up a body called Link to help Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to reconnect with their family. 
one of the first places that Coral went to to promote the services offered by Link was the National Aboriginal Consultative Council, made up of 40 middle-aged Aboriginal elders. Keith Windshuttle, in his book The Fabrication of Aboriginal History, The Stolen Generations, captures the chemistry of that moment, how the wisdom of Dennis Prager, pointing out that as humans we need someone to blame, was as irresistible to this audience as to any other, and would soon take on a staggering degree of acceptability throughout Australia and indeed the world, up to this very day. Keith Windshuttle said this, It is not difficult to understand the immediate appeal of such an explanation to many Aboriginal families, especially to those who had grown up on welfare communities and segregated housing estates, with high rates of crime, alcoholism, domestic violence and child abuse. This new version of events was deeply comforting. The myriad problems in their own lives no longer derived from the failings of their families or the bad choices they made themselves. Mothers had not given their children away. Fathers had not left their children destitute or deserted their families or been so consumed by alcohol they left them vulnerable to sexual predators. Siblings and cousins had not abandoned their communities because they thought their way of life hopeless. Instead of reproaching themselves, instead of reproaching themselves, Aborigines could suddenly identify as morally innocent victims of a terrible injustice. Their problems could all be blamed on faceless white bureaucrats driven by racism. Since Reed created this interpretation, it has come to be believed by most Aboriginal people in Australia. I should tell you something about Coral Umara Edwards' experience in that institution, how she saw it, and how that has coloured her view of the world. Coral had been a resident at the Kudamundra Aboriginal Girls' Home. She was perhaps the longest resident. She spent her entire childhood there from infancy to adolescence. and She never forgave those officials who devised the policy that led to her removal from her family. She was interviewed by Anne Deverson of the ABC for her series of programs called Faces of Change. This exchange certainly typified Coral's attitude to everything that had happened to her. Anne Deverson, do you think you gained anything from coming here? Coral, no. Anne, and yet Matron said that when you came here, you were almost dying from malnutrition. Coral, well, if I was, I should have had the right to die. I should have been allowed to stay with me family and live through whatever I was going to live through. Not for other people to take us and try to save us by their own values. Other girls who had been at the same home had a positive attitude to their experience. Sure, it wasn't like home, it was an institution. But they got an education and got the chance to get good jobs when they left. Meryl Lee Brindley did a thesis about the Kudamundra Girls' Home for her MA thesis. This is a typical interview she had with a former occupant. Were you happy at the home? I suppose I was, looking back. We were certainly looked after, well fed and that, but it was an institution after all. 
not the same as your own home. I can understand why they took me. Mum and Dad were terrible when they were on the grog. In fact, we were dead scared. Used to bash us up. Drink's the curse of our race. Just can't seem to handle it. So I suppose I was better off. Lived to tell the tale, as they say. Which leads me to the curious speech that Kevin Rudd made on my behalf and on behalf of all non-Indigenous Australians on 13 February 2008, when, as our Prime Minister, he delivered the speech of which this is a part. Today we honour the Indigenous peoples of this land. We reflect on their past mistreatment. We reflect in particular on the mistreatment of those who were stolen generations. This series of 13 programs has made it clear that the judiciary of this land, the highest courts, have all rejected the idea that there was a stolen generations. Truth-telling are words that we hear a lot about these days. As they would say in the legal world, Kevin Rudd either knew what he was saying wasn't true, or he ought to have known, but he still said them. So why on earth did Kevin Rudd make this apology for those many Australians who had dedicated their lives caring for and saving the lives of many Aboriginal children, especially half-caste ones? Something that was good. Unsurprising, looking behind the stolen generation's myth, was the demand for compensation. The Jewish survivors of the death camps didn't want compensation. They wanted the criminals responsible for the Holocaust to be brought to trial. That's normal. The conclusion of the Bring Them Home report was that compensation should be paid to the victims of the stolen generations, which McDodson said was every one of the 100,000 Aboriginal families. That would come to a cool $50 billion. The answer as to why Kevin Rudd apologised, and for the bulk of the people in Australia who don't know that the stolen generation story is a pure myth, is that he reinforced for them that the non-Indigenous Australians had wronged the Indigenous Australians. I think the explanation for why he did this, given by retired Professor Stephen Allen Sampson of the Helms School of Government Liberty University in an article he wrote called Cultural Vandalism, Lust to Rule, Road to Ruin, published in the book Wokeshivism, is on the money. Government may not act with firmness and coherent direction because it has been retooled to promote the ad hoc purposes of those who control and those who receive largesse. Instead of embracing a focused and disciplined political vision, its activities are diffuse and chiefly concern the distribution of the spoils. Thus the National Treasury, increasingly rated to underwrite a rapidly growing national debt, becomes a political slush fund serving whatever interests are successfully able to divert its resources to their own purposes. To summarise, the expansion of governmental activity is a direct consequence of the inability of public officials to withstand the demands made of them, a description of political weakness rather than strength. Neither the Rudd government nor any government that's come after his have had the courage to tell the truth that there was no stolen generation. There was certainly the need for a national apology, 
but the apology needed was from the people who had orchestrated the whole stolen generation's myth. The apology needed was to the Australian public as a whole, and especially to those people who sacrificed so much to help the Aboriginals, now all dead, and whose good names have been vilely dragged through the mud. I'm reminded of Isaiah 5.20 in the Bible, which says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This whole stolen generations thing is an absolute disgrace, and it needs to be owned up for what it is, a fabrication. Thanks for listening into this program, CYKIAE. If you missed it, you can catch up with it as a podcast on my CYKIAE, Spotify, Apple, Google, and many other podcast sites. Just look at my program details on Cairns FM 89.1 for clickable links. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, the Gafcon Northern Hope Anglican Church at the Cairns and District Junior Estedford Hall, 67 Greenslopes Street, Edge Hill, some Sunday at 9am. If you liked this program, you should definitely listen in to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone, also available as a podcast on those same sites. Search Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close brackets.